Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Emma Perfect, Global Diversity and Inclusion Manager for the Soho House Group and Force for Positive Change. Coming up on today's show, Phil demonstrates some deep intellect because I suppose the daily news changes daily. Emma reveals the meticulous strategy that got her her job. After that, I think I'd honestly just gone on about it enough. <laughs> they just decided to make it my job just to shut me up. And whatever it was Phil meant to say, we're pretty sure it wasn't this. When I first started out in my, um, you know, my adult career, all that and a whole lot more as Emma talks us through her story and journey to date. As you can imagine, given Emma's role, there's a lot of really good stuff in our chat about diversity and inclusion, a subject very much for the now and hence the bonus episode this week. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week, so hit that subscribe button on any of the podcast apps. Please also give us a like and a share across your networks. Let's spread those stories. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Streets. Today we welcome someone to the show who I suppose really showcases my point about the depth of opportunity that's available within hospitality. Currently heading up diversity and inclusion for the global Soho House portfolio, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Emma Perfect. Hi Phil. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm really good, thank you. How are you today? Yes, very good indeed. First off the bat, let's deal with the, the elephant in the room which is uh, your surname. As, as surnames <laughs> go, it doesn't get much better. Yeah, I, it is the entire reason that I married my husband. I don't even <laughs> like the guy, but it just seemed like too good of an opportunity to pass up. <laughs> and I'm sure you've had, uh, you've had no jokes about it in the past at all. This is the first time that somebody's attempted something like that. Well, you do get comments. I think my favourite was the time we went to America and we'd had a very delayed flight and we got to our hotel incredibly late and we just wanted to go to bed and the whole reception team started passing around our passports and having a good joke about that. That's a, yeah. that's a tip for people in hospitality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I have a, a fairly unique surname myself. It's um, Street, which is, uh, I, I get all, I've had all manner of nicknames across my life, Coronation, uh, pigeon, street hawk, street wise, uh, some less uh, less broadcastable um, as well. But um, I suppose it's inevitable that people focus on these things. Well, what I like to think is it makes you a bit memorable, doesn't it? I quite, I quite like it that. Does. I don't mind that. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, I'm not going to dwell on this subject matter. I'm not going to make it 45 minutes about your name. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but maybe could you just give us a kind of a a, a rough overview of what your role actually involves yeah of course um so i'm the diversity and inclusion manager for soho house and co which is best known as a group of private members clubs but we do also have restaurants bedrooms spas cinemas co-working spaces all around the world to explain what i do there i look after diversity which is about having a good mix of people in your business and making sure that you get the best person for the job. Um, so the example that I always use is that if only about one in six or seven people at culinary school are women, then we're probably not getting the best chefs. So and you're a recruiter, you want the best kind of talent pool. Yep. And if you're always hiring the same person over and over again, you maybe aren't getting that. So part of it is trying to address that, which is tricky. And we, we've been 
starting to record our data to try and find out where we where we where we are and how we can do better and in terms of our recruitment spreading the net a bit wider so kind of thinking about where and how we advertise our jobs and looking at our hiring processes to see if there might be any bias in that right um, I'm also focused on inclusion which means making sure that people of all backgrounds and identities feel welcome at Soho House and what's great in hospitality is that people normally get that concept right away because fundamentally that's what all of us are trying to do right it's a very hospitable concept I think yeah yeah it's is it fair to say that that Soho House kind of feels like they've taken a little bit of a lead on this because this is not a role title certainly that I've seen or can remember seeing anywhere else yeah I think we've I think we've definitely been ahead largely of the industry I think there are organizations you know the Hiltons and the, the big hotel groups I think are more aware of it so Hilton yeah um IHG a couple of them um and you know people like Starbucks I think are very aware of this as well but yeah for a business of our scale and size I guess and certainly in the UK we probably are slightly ahead of the game yeah although I hasten to say you know we're not we haven't got it all covered yet there's still a lot to do yeah but you have to start somewhere, right? That's the um, uh, the key point. Yeah, well, that's that's what I try and tell myself. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm also guessing that maybe up until about a couple of years ago that roles like this didn't really exist in many places. Yeah, I think... That... It feels like it's quite a modern concept. Yeah, I suppose it is. Um, it's quite a new idea. And, you know, I think people, some people are a bit, kind of sniffy about it and say oh we didn't used to have all this identity politics you know back in the day but I think these days we are much more aware of wanting everyone to feel included and we want to our businesses to have the biggest reach that they can possibly have and I think particularly the sort of generations coming through now millennials and younger absolutely want to be you know, part of a diverse team. They want to have their different needs met. Uh, they bring them their whole selves to work. That's something we talk about a lot in inclusion, the, the whole self. You know, back in the 30 years ago, there were people, 20 years ago, there were people pretending that they were straight at work when they weren't. Yeah. So I don't personally hark back to those those days. I think it's I think it's a good thing that we are trying to address this. Yeah. Well, I, I suppose that's it's called progress, I think. <laughs> Okay, so well, let's before we uh, I, I maybe delve into that a little bit more uh, detail, take us all the way back to kind of the beginning of your career because I think maybe maybe you more than anyone else that I've had on on the show before, you you've probably not got what I would classify as a a conforming CV as to you know you've gotten here because you did X Y Z strategically, you've gotten here because of your opportunities have, have presented themselves at the appropriate time, I guess. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree that uh, hospitality is something that I've fallen into. So the, yeah, I, the short story is that I spent my whole career in journalism and that is what I had always wanted to do. So yeah. I was on the student paper at university. I got jobs on various magazines and then I went to the Times and did about five years there as an editor, working on everything from the fashion pages to the leader columns. And that was brilliant. You know, I I had an absolutely fantastic time and I loved it. But um, when I had my daughter, I found it really hard to make it work because you never really know when you're going to finish on a daily newspaper. We used to have this joke that, you know, when we'd we'd put everything to bed at sort of eight o'clock, that Margaret Thatcher was going to die. 
Um, and then we'd have to redo the entire thing. But then one day Margaret actually did die and we didn't have to do that. So then we had to move on to someone else. But um, you, you are, you are, it's quite difficult to make that work with childcare. So I went freelance, which meant I could work from home. And then someone I'd worked with on Elle magazine, which is I think potentially the only glossy magazine I ever worked on that hasn't now closed, which is a dubious claim to fame, um, <laughs> approached me about a job at Soho House. Um, and they were looking for someone to create an internal magazine for them. And this friend remembered that I'd done quite a bit of food writing at the Times. Um, I mean, truth be told, mostly out of greed. I didn't really have any background in that. I just really love food and drink. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like a fantastic opportunity because they were they were giving me a pretty much a blank sheet of paper to work with. And as an editor, you, you know, that, that's fantastic. You can do whatever you want with it. My only brief was that they wanted something that would cover their news, food, drink and lifestyle stuff. And they have this Cowshed Spa brand. Um, and that would be in the style of a consumer magazine. Um, and really importantly for me at the time, it was only two days a week. So that meant I could still do a bit of my freelance writing and I could still spend some good quality time with my daughter, who was only a toddler. Yeah. Um, so I joined and we made this magazine. I had this brilliant art director called Giles Arbery, who'd come from Stylist, he'd won awards at Stylist and he's got his own agency now. I absolutely love him. And it was great. It looked great. There were some fantastic stories to tell around the houses and about all our teams. Um, and I just, I loved talking to them because they were also passionate about what they did, whether it was talking about butchery or, you know, this new type of cocktail that they were working on or a new way of doing their facials or, you know, whatever it was. Mm. It was so rewarding to hear from those people and they got a real kick out of seeing their story. At the same time, it was quite a culture shock coming out of media and going into hospitality after all those years. Um, I was coming from a background where nobody really cared that much what time you showed up in the morning to a culture where, you know, 9.01am was considered late. <laughs> and in the beginning, I, would, I remember I would send an awful lot of emails and nobody would ever respond to these emails and I couldn't understand why. And of course, you know, nobody really sits at a computer in hospitality. It took me quite a line. It sounds really dim now, but it took me a long time to work this out. Right. And, it, you know, it was also a pretty sort of young company. Everyone's under 35. I was a bit worried about not fitting in. I didn't think I was really cool enough. So I kept it pretty quiet that I was a mum in the beginning. And then I got pregnant in the first year. I couldn't really hide it because I was enormous <laughs> um, so the the jig was up at that point I went off I had my baby after about a year I came back and then I can't maybe it was another year or so but sometime afterwards we had to report our gender pay gap for the first time so in case anyone doesn't know what the gender pay gap is it's the difference between what you pay your male employees on average and what you pay your female employees on average yeah so Soho House had a relatively modest gap. I think it was something like 15%. And you would see banks and law firms that had a gap of, you know, more than 50%. Wow. Right. It was below the national average. It wasn't shocking. But what it did was start a conversation about equality because I think people were quite surprised that we had any gap. You know, with Soho House was so cool. <laughs> yeah. we, don't, we don't think we discriminate against anybody. How can this be? And I was quite vocal in that conversation because it was something that I'd written about a lot on my days when I wasn't there I was still working a lot for the times and I would write for all these supplements they had like the top 50 employers for women and I realized that actually a lot of these companies that we all think of as these sort of terrible corporates like the banks or the defense companies or the oil companies were doing a lot more to make sure that they were fair and they treated their people properly than we were right interesting and I understand why because you know I think Soho House had always sort of felt that 
we were on top of this when it was founded. It was founded by Nick Jones in the 90s at a time when a lot of members clubs were still talking about whether to admit women. It was this real sort of gentleman's club right. vibe. Wow. God, that, that seems like, I mean, it's not that long ago, really, is it? No, it's not. And I can remember reading about that in the in the press when I was at school. And this is a time of, you know, Section 28. You weren't allowed to kind of talk about homosexuality in schools. And there was a lot of people that were really defending that. And you had all these places where sort of, you know, you had to wear a tie and everyone had been to the same couple of schools. Yeah. So Nick opens this place that's right in the heart of Soho. It's targeted at the people in the film and creative industries. It's right opposite GAY. And it just had a totally different vibe. And I think, you know, he didn't care where anyone had been to school. He didn't care if they were gay or straight. It was all about this interesting creative crowd. And I think that's what made it a success because people came to meet people they wouldn't have met otherwise. And then quite often they would get useful contact out of that. Um, but then obviously the trouble was that it was then so successful that Nick ended up opening another 25 houses around the world. Yeah. And when you're growing that fast, I, if you've ever worked on an opening in hospitality, you'll know this. Everyone was pretty much flat out yeah. for, you know, 20 years. So I think inclusion was probably something we hadn't thought about that much, probably because we just always assumed we were good at it. And then when we started to really look at it, partly as a result of the gender pay gap reporting, we realized that there were things that we needed to think about and we weren't really on top of it anymore. So we set up an inclusion committee to start really thinking about whether we were doing enough to make sure that everyone felt welcome and everyone felt included and enough to make sure that our teams were the strongest that they could be. So we did that for a year. And then after that, I think I'd honestly just gone on about it enough. <laughs> they just decided to make it my job just to shut me up. I'll go on then if you, <laughs> if you must. Yeah. If we're really honest, that's how it came about. Right. How interesting. Yeah. So it was, um, I suppose, data is your friend in a, a circumstance like this, because the data wouldn't lie. It tells you what you need to know and, and where you need to go with it, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Anyone who knows anything about diversity will tell you that it starts with the data. You know, until we saw that number, 15% of the gender pay gap, we didn't know that we were, you know, we, didn't, we never thought that there would be any difference between how our men and our women got paid or what roles they were in um so you can learn a lot mm. from that um it is it's tricky because you have to ask people to tell you about themselves and it's quite sensitive and the ideal way to do it as you you'll know being a recruiter is if you ask people at the stage of application the best way of tracking is if we know exactly who's applying and you get them to tick all these boxes about their ethnicity, about their sexual orientation, about whether they have any disabilities, whether they have any kids. And then you can see, OK, are we not getting applications? Are we not interviewing those people? Are we not hiring them once they've interviewed? You know, or what are our kind of you can you can look at that whole chain and work out kind of where the holes are in it. Yeah. But people instinctively do not want to tell you that when they're applying for a job. Right. They feel like those things are going to be used against them. Yeah. So there's still very much a case to be made explaining why you need that data and kind of how you're going to use it. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. I still have, well, morally, I feel conflicted about asking people questions like that because you know, I suppose the first response is naturally to think, well, what, what do you need that data for? You know, what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to sell it to somebody to do something sinister or or whatever? And I suppose that's just the way of the world that we have, that we have this kind of paranoia about where our data is going. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, you know, we were, we were all chucking it on the internet for a long time, weren't we? And didn't really think much about it. So I understand why people are a bit more cautious at this stage. But yeah. 
Um, yeah, from my point of view, I, I hope that the industry will start to use that more and at least we'll start to look at who's on their books already because you can spot an awful lot of issues and an awful lot of areas for improvement if you do that. And then you can also track your progress and you start to get better almost immediately. You know, we, we immediately reduced our gender pay gap because we realized that there were some areas where we had problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, a great place to start for sure. What's what's the key to running, uh, I suppose, a successful diversity and inclusion department slash role? How do you get everybody on board? I, I suppose maybe it's a, a concept that people are mentally on board with to start with. But how do you then roll that out uh, so that it becomes kind of common policy? Well, it's difficult. I think you have to be mindful of where people are and what they want to hear at their, you know, at their level and like what, what matters to them. So there are different people who will be interested in different things. Some people are really interested in our work on mental health. Other people, you know, they start thinking about sort of gender equality and then they realise that there are these all these issues that kind of intersect with that. And actually there's a lot of people being oppressed because of their race, for example, you know, because of their sexuality. So, mm. you know, some people are just kind of naturally drawn in through one issue or another for a lot of people, as I said at the beginning, you know, it's it's about giving really good service. And that's how I try to frame it, as Sarah has most often, is that we were founded as a business that had a diverse community. And that's why people come to us rather than the club where it's full of people they already knew. We want to have that diversity and that really is important to our business. So I think a lot of people kind of, they understand that, that it's actually really essential to what we do and and there's a massive business case for it yeah what um i mean i haven't never ever wanted to make these podcasts about uh the covid19 situation but i suppose how have you or what what have you done through this period to to kind of keep keep this on the agenda keep moving forward all of these things well um obviously the big challenge has been mental health yeah I've actually ended up going back more into internal comms um, and supporting that and doing a bit on mental health. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, it was Mental Health Awareness Week. So we did an awful lot of work around that. And our chief executive mentioned that in a in a video and our chief people officer wrote a post about it. And, and we got external people to do different seminars explaining to people how to be mentally fit. And, and I think, you know, what what maybe we've... I have to take this as a positive, I guess, from the whole thing is that what I think people are starting to realise is that mental well-being, you know, mental health is something that everyone has. So it's not just that we used to think, oh, there's sometimes people will say, oh, that's people with mental health. And they mean someone who's, you know, got a mental health issue, yeah. um, who's experiencing poor mental health. But actually, we all have mental health just as we have physical health. So we've been really encouraging people to look after their mental health and to think about what supports their mental health. It's different for everyone. Some people it's exercise, some people it's kind of staying connected. Some people uh, like to write things down or, you know, they need a lot of kind of alone time. It's it's very specific to each individual, but it's, it's something that we all need to really focus on because even if you think you're absolutely fantastic today and you're doing really well I think what this whole situation has taught us is that you never really know what's around the corner right yeah oh for sure I mean it's been a, a change such a changeable environment on a day-to-day basis right in terms of the things that are coming at us you know and how business needs to respond and then how 
that goes down the the channels into the workforce and so on and so forth. And I've had days where I've felt really on it and really on top of it and days where I've just woken up and not really known where to start. And I think it's just been, for me, it's definitely been about just accepting that that's the way it's going to be and it's okay to have a, a couple of hours whereby you you're not just tuned in switched on if that's what you need yeah absolutely and yeah and it's and it's great to hear you say that because I think you know we we need to all be able to acknowledge that sometimes we're not okay yeah you know we say it's okay not to be okay <laughs> that all of us have those moments and particularly you know this is not I think it would it would be very unusual if people weren't feeling that way right now, right? That we're dealing with an awful lot of uncertainty. We're not able to be together. We're, you know, we're in this very weird, scary situation. So of course, you know, it's kind of, we're all taking a bit of a battering, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. The um, Yeah. And everybody deals with it in their own different way, don't they? But some people may be sweeping things under the carpet whereby you know, they have to know that they've got somebody that they can turn to, talk to, mentors, whatever that may look like. I think it's massively important. It's it's important anyway, but in a time like this, which is deeply uncertain, uh, I can imagine that that takes on an extra dimension. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think we also need to be mindful that it's not going to end when we reopen. You know, it's not going to be that this terrible time is kind of finished when we reopen. First of all, we're not going straight back to normal, but I also think we're going to have a bit of a delayed reaction for some people, especially those of us who have kind of kept going and kept working throughout. You know, I think people process things in different ways and at different rates. Hmm. And so I'm I'm trying to think now about, you know, what, what can we be doing in three months, six months, a year to make sure that we're supporting our people as best we can? Yeah. But I think also, I mean, if we do get back to any kind of well what is normal now but the um what it was like beforehand the biggest challenge for a lot of organizations was was people and finding good people but actually doing a lot more work like this i would imagine should mean that companies are able to retain people much better because there's better engagement you know people are aware of day-to-day issues as they come up as opposed to them you know being issues that just keep on getting worse and worse which should mean that you know companies have better fortune in in retaining the people in their business. Yeah, well, you know, I I hope so, but uh, yeah, I think we we have to wait and see, don't we? The, yeah, it's a lot to get through. Yeah, absenteeism could be an issue for sure going forward. I think we need to really be mindful of that as well. That you know, people may be struggling with their physical health. They may be struggling with their mental health as well in the aftermath of all this. Yeah. No, there's a, a lot to get straight. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, we've gone deep and I don't normally do that. So I, I, one, I thank you for doing that and to apologize for ha- having made you do that. But um, there was something came up actually that I'm just going to, this is purely self-indulgent. So I f- forgive me for that. Hopefully uh, people will come back and listen to me again. But you mentioned there that you worked in a daily news, or you worked on the daily news as it were for for the Times one of the things that I've found in this period has been a program called The Newsroom. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, yeah, I have watched that because I am a massive Aaron Sorkin fan. Yes, likewise. I, I don't know how I missed that the first time round, but I, I just, again, as I say, purely indulgent. Is it accurate that it's 
that kind of full on all the time because I suppose the daily news changes daily. Yeah, I mean, of course it does. But in a way, it was the least stressful job I've ever had, you know, because and I think it has this in common with hospitality because, yeah, it's absolutely, you know, it can be mad on the day and you are getting stuff thrown at you and you know you think you've got your paper already as I said and then something happens and you have to tear it all up and you start again but as in a kitchen you have to do it you just have to do it your edition has to go at 11 o'clock so you get very good at just getting on with things and not overthinking them and then at the end of that one day it's done and you don't have to go home thinking about it you can just get up, you know, I guess there's a bit of that editorial conference in the morning, they will talk about yesterday's paper. And, you know, particularly those sort of famous tabloids where the editors will, you know, ask them, you know, well, how come this paper got this scoop and you didn't? There's a bit of that. But yeah. basically, you go home at night, you've done your paper, you wake up the next day, and you do another one. And that's it. And that, I always loved that I was a bartender. When I was at university, I put myself through uni bartending. And I... Um, I loved that about it. You just go and do your shift and yeah, it's completely manic, but you don't really think about anything in that time. Yeah. Um, so in a way it's quite sort of, it was quite de-stressing compared with, you know, now I'm working on a project that could potentially, you know, it's we're looking at years to kind of do this and unravel it. And it's really, it's tricky and multifaceted and I don't know how to do it all. That's, you know, that's giving <laughs> right. me up at night a lot more than when I was working, you know, in what you might describe as the cut and thrust. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well. I mean, is the project exciting? Can you share anything about the future? Well, I mean, look, Phil. I'll be honest with you. I've got a spreadsheet on my desktop. It's incredibly detailed, and it's called Twenty Twenty Plan. And you know, this month, uh, I think I was going to be having a global diversity and inclusion week, a kind of roadshow. I was probably going to be flying all over the place, going and seeing people, doing training. We, you know, April, we were going to do our gender pay gap report again. We were going to be rolling out different trainings for our people. We have all these workshops uh, that we've been running. I mean, if you want to talk about how to engage people, probably our most successful thing that we've done so far is a training where we talk to people about bias and how we all kind of make assumptions. And then we have filmed with actors in Soho Houses certain scenes showing where bias can creep into our service. Right. And so the example, you know, the example I always give is where the server, there's a man and a woman at the table and the server gives the beer to the man and the gin to the woman um, and then brings the bill over for the man. And of course, you know, they swap drinks and the, you know, the woman's the boss and she takes the bill. Yeah. Uh, people, people <laughs> really like get in that. my house. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and in a lot of houses these days, you know, I think if you're not getting that one right, you make yourself look a bit ridiculous. You know, you look really dated, which is definitely not what we want for Sarah House. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we've we been working on, on that and just kind of really engaging on the floor, kind of getting our people to understand what, you know, how to be more inclusive in, in literally every little thing that we do. So that, you know, that was all happening. But as of now, I, do, I, I don't really know what we're going to be doing for the rest of the year. I think it's going to be probably going to be quite different from what we thought at the beginning. Yeah, I'm just grateful I don't work in uh, the world of financial modelling because I can imagine that um, <laughs> on a day-to-day basis, all the work that you just did yesterday, you just rip it up and start yeah. again. For sure. And I guess all those models are looking pretty scary, right? How many? Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. many different ways are there to show something dropping off a cliff? 
But yeah. that's not going to support our mental health to focus on that. So no, absolutely <laughs> Let's not. leave that where it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always try to keep this lighthearted. Uh, I'm not doing a very good job today, so um, I don't know what's something in the water or, or whatever it is. But well, on that note, then let's move to to lighthearted. Have you got any examples of any funny stories you could share with us? Oh my goodness! I mean, do you know, it's hard to it's hard to think at our house. I think we just have so many funny stories that my mind goes a bit blank when I have to pull one out. Um, there is an ancient story. Um, we're, we're, by the way, we're not supposed to really talk about any of our famous members. Okay. Um, you can whisper so, it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> since we're between friends and it's a very old story, and I don't know for sure if it's true, but there is this ancient story about Bill Murray being in one of our original London clubs in the 90s. I think it was I think it was 40 Greek Street. And it was, you know, as I've, as I've mentioned, it was this really kind of odd kind of creative crowd so Bill Murray's sitting there with another A-lister and there's a slam poet there's just this random slam poet walking around spouting poetry at them for whatever reason he just decides to like go up to them and start you know slamming poetry in their faces and generally making a nuisance for himself and then so things get a bit heated and they start to have a bit of an argument and apparently this is you know in the 90s uh, not that long after Ghostbusters came out, Bill stands up, shouts "Ghostbusters" and sprays him with the fire extinguisher. Okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> as you do. I mean, more recently, we've, I mean, we've we've had some really lovely members making us messages of support and videos and things, talking to us about how much they miss the clubs. And there was another actor who sent us a message where he'd. He'd made a little Soho house in his cupboard. He had like just a, a cupboard, um, there were like a walk-in cupboard, and he had put a little sign on the door that said "So-So House." Oh, bless! I thought, I thought that was really lovely, and yeah, that really tickled me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's a big, a big loss for them as well at the moment, right? If you're if you're used to routine that takes you into into your spaces, and that's what you're kind of used to, then and you don't have that now, then they're making their Soho house from home. Yeah, I guess they are. I mean, I yeah, I hope they'll still find their cocktails are slightly better at our place. I hope they'll yeah. still come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I I suppose uh, the 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 ying to the the funny yang is is scary and terrifying. Have you ever had anything where you've just felt monumentally out of your depth and and how did you deal with it? Oh well. Um... It's like a job interview now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, well, there's been a couple. There's been a couple of things. I guess this weekend just gone. We've we've spent a lot of time talking about some of the recent events in the states in in Minneapolis. Yeah, the police killing there, and there was also something where an incident you may not have even seen, but there was a dog walker in Central Park who's out walking a dog and, and a guy asked her to put it on a lead because it's in an area where dogs have to be on the lead because it's birds. And they start they have a bit of a they have a bit of an argument and she really openly threatens him that she's gonna call the police on him and tell them that an African American man is threatening her. Oh somebody Which, told me about that this yeah, week. Yeah. It, I mean, you should it's a it's a tough video to watch but look at the story. It's just so unpleasant and it's just because he told her to put her dog on a lead and then of course it transpires later so she's going call the cop like come now please i'm being threatened and then 
it turns out this guy's, you know, he's like on the board of Central Park or something. He's a he's a very respected bird watcher. He's there all the time, bird watching. Right. Um, and what he's asked her to do is completely legitimate, and she just used her privilege as a white woman to to threaten him with the police. And you know, I think in a lot of people have said to me that they find that incident in some ways more shocking than what happened with George Floyd in Minneapolis, or you know, there's been obviously countless other stories of that nature but this one is someone who's very educated she works in a bank i think we think she's given money like it looks like she's given money to barack obama it looks like she's given money to democratic party candidates um and i'm sure from the the comments that she's made about this she doesn't think of herself as being racist at all Mm. but she's she's using someone's race against him who is out bird watching yeah and it just it goes to show, I think, how kind of deeply rooted prejudice is, you know, in all of us, in me as well, you know, in everybody. And we don't even recognize it, I think, a lot of the time. And so as a result, you know, these these stories, our our American team and our black, t- you know, team members particularly are just really hurting. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us are hurting because of that. And I was trying to think about what our response should be to that as a company. You know, what should I say? What should our CEO say? We don't usually speak about public events. We always say, you know, so us is not political. We don't, we don't get into these things. But it really felt like a moment where we had to do something or we had to say something and we had to recognise that. And we had to kind of stand up with our black community and say, this is not okay. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm trying to sort of figure out this puzzle, but I was also just having my own response to it all, which was just to feel so drained and gutted and, yeah. you know, to some degree, I think, ashamed. Yeah, it's a good word to sum it up, actually, uh, drained, because you, it does completely, you know, and we're, look, we're in, a, a, I suppose, a, pr- a privileged position in the fact that we're on the other side of the Atlantic you know, away from what's happening immediately in front of you, as it were. But you just, I certainly, the way I felt was, it just feels like sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. You feel like progress is being made and then something comes along and just whips that away from under you. And it's just, it's demoralizing. Yeah, yeah, it really can be. So that, I think that's probably the most recent example where I just thought, what, you know, and also I'm not really qualified to respond to that. You know, there is an area and a way in which in inclusion, you can't be, you know, you can't be all these different things. And even if you are, you know, one gay man's experience is not the experience of another gay man. You know, we are all these very complicated intersectional people from lots of different aspects of our identity. And this is not an attack on me. It feels like an attack on, on, you know, people I care about and my, you know, my community at Sarah House and the people in that but it's not necessarily my story and so yeah that was that was a really that that's been a really big challenge just over the past week I think yeah very difficult to understand what to do for the best and I suppose a lot of this comes down to very simply knowing the difference between right and wrong and I know that that's a very simple way of looking at it but I think the majority of us probably do know the difference between right and wrong but sometimes that's just not what comes out. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky. In the example of racism, I suppose, in some ways it's really tricky because people 
just don't think it applies to them. You know, they think it's right and wrong. So well, obviously I'm not one of those people. You know, this woman, this dog walker woman, I'm sure she doesn't think she's a bad person. She doesn't think she's wrong. She didn't think she was wrong at the time. She thought she was absolutely right. Yeah. And this guy was, you know, hassling her or whatever. Um, and to some degree, that's just her her unconscious bias. I think she, you know, she sees a black man, maybe she perceives him as a threat or, you know, if she doesn't, maybe, I don't know, maybe she is just a bad person. But it, it, what it seems to me is that we do have those issues on this side of the Atlantic as well. And maybe we just don't talk about them as much. We don't see them as much. They're a bit buried deeper down. But if you, you know, to bring it back to recruitment, if you send out your CV and you have a stereotypically... Uh, black or minority ethnic name and then we send out a cv that has a sort of stereotypically white name you will have to send out 50 percent more cvs as a black candidate to get an interview than you will as a white candidate right and that's not like an issue to the recruiter or the person you know the hiring manager that's not an issue of right and wrong that's just people when you look at the studies people spot more spelling mistakes in the application from the black candidate right so it's just it's I think it's it's a lot deeper than that. Of course, people want to tackle it, but the, as we were talking about with the data earlier, I think sometimes the first step to tackling it is to actually recognize where there is a problem and and understand that we really do all have those biases. And it's not just that there is this one group of pig- people called kind of you know racists or bigots or whatever. There aren't these like bad people, and then there's the rest of us. All of us have those biases and all of us are probably discriminating against people in some way. Yeah, I suppose it's related in some way to to confirmation bias in terms of you believe what you believe and then you 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 don't automatically, but it's easier for you to to find things that back up your argument than to see a, a bigger picture with something similar concept, I suppose. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and it's something that, you know, as, as a mum, it terrifies me that, you know, I kind of, when I was growing up, I thought I oh, was a, you know, as a woman, I can do whatever I want now. You know, it's the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I'm completely free. My opportunities are going to be exactly the same. And then it kind of, it gets to the kids stage. And actually, you know, it's usually still the women who are doing the childcare, for example. And then when, you know, you think, oh, well, it'll be different for the next generation. But actually, you know, my husband was reading snow white to my daughter this morning and i was listening to that story and you think this story is horrendous yeah it's a story about a woman hating and attacking another woman because she's more attractive than her yeah. <laughs> you know, this is, these are the archetypes that we're giving our children from a really young age and by the way to bring it back to race you look around you know a child's bookshelf and find me a book in you know the uk or the us where there's you know the main character is a person of color it is always a white child in the main role in the story. Yeah. And if you're lucky and the person thinks they're being super right on, they've shoved a couple of, you know, children from different ethnicities in the background of the picture. That's overwhelmingly the stories that we're still telling our children. And then, of course, those are the archetypes that you grow up with. And then later on, you you see those patterns and you go out into the world expecting to see those things. And that's you know, and as you said, then there's just massive confirmation bias and everything fits the pattern that you expected to see. Yeah, no, absolutely. I suppose the the one, I don't know whether I should admit this on air, but um, the one that I saw semi-ways recently would be Frozen, which at least is not dealing with a stereotypical love story of, you know, helpless woman meets amazing man. Uh, it's a love story between two sisters. 
but I suppose that's maybe just the way I saw it. Maybe I've just confirmed my own bias towards it. I don't know. Well, oh, look, as someone who's been living with a lot of frozen crap in her house for a really long time yeah. now, for like five years now, um, I have mixed feelings about Frozen. But yes, I, I completely agree. And I think Disney realised at that point that a lot of their films were problematic in some ways. And they um, have started to do some really, you know, more positive work with Frozen. I think Frozen 2 is even better from that point of view, um, Moana is really positive. But at the same time, you know, they're all beautiful. Like when Elsa has her makeover or whatever and she goes out into the, you know, she makes her ice palace, she starts doing this amazing kind of really hippie kind of walk and she's got this dress with a huge slit up the leg. And, That's very you know, true. Does, yeah. does, that really, does that really need to be in the story? And, all you know, the kids all want to be Elsa. They don't want to be Anna. Right. They want to be the sexy one. I want to be Olaf. <laughs> To be honest, <laughs> I think we can all agree that he is the single best character that's ever existed in a Disney movie. Yeah, I think he's he's definitely the star for sure. Yeah, I th- that's well. There was a topic I didn't expect to cover today, Phil. No, thank you well, for getting me. I did say to you beforehand, this will go where it goes. <laughs> there's no structure. There's no you know. It just let's explore what we explore, and nice to actually, I suppose, again bring it back to being a little bit tongue in cheek and lighthearted because it is a serious subject. And this is in no way meant to be a serious podcast, but I, I equally I don't object to having conversations that that make sense. And I certainly am not the the oracle when it comes to to matters of uh, diversity and inclusion. I like to think that I I would do the 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 right thing as far as I see it, but I don't know that the the right thing is the absolute right thing. Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's it's a it's a good it's an interesting point, isn't it? As far as you see it, but what do we see? We all see what we expect to see. And in one of my trainings, I use a sort of visual example, and it's kind of a picture with a bunch of dots in it. And you ask people what did they see, and they all see different things, and it's kind of based on things they've seen before. Yeah, so I think the the first step is probably just to know that you need to think twice. You need to check that instinct, and if you're thinking about it then you're probably on the right track if you're just trying to double check yourself that you're making those decisions based on someone's merits and not on yeah. you know certain presumptions that you might have about them. That's, yeah. that's a good start. Start somewhere, right? Usually at the beginning. <laughs> Although um, it feels like, it, I, as you said, I suppose a frustrating element is is that these are, con- these are not new conversations. They are conversations that I can remember being out in the open as subject matters, if not being fully addressed, I suppose, you know, 20 years ago, when I first started out in my, um, you know, my adult career, if you like, that sounds really wrong, doesn't it? I have never had an adult career. Let's just be clear on this. <laughs> if you, But you know what I mean? 20 years on, we're still talking about the same sorts of things. Yeah. It's really bleak, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> and I suppose we're going to be talking about it for some time, some time yeah. to come as well. But that's okay, you know, you learn yeah. through talking. And, and I think also for me, something that's been, something that I've really learned in my time, you know, when I started out as a journalist, I was I was pretty bad, you know, I was, I, I was always a much better editor than I was a writer. And when I would try to do writing, I would really, yeah, I think when you're young, you're so keen to tell everyone what you think, I mean, what you want to say, and kind of amaze the world with your brilliance. But as I've grown up, I think I've realised, you know, as a journalist, the best stories were always told from someone else's kind of perspective if you could do really active listening and draw someone out 
it's always going to be more interesting than if you're trying to desperately sort of describe the color of the sky in a poetic way, you know? Yeah. And that's a that's a principle that I use in diversity now because, you know, as I said earlier, I don't share everyone's experiences. I tick some of those boxes and not others. There's something you have to be really mindful of. It's just to kind of talk to people, listen to people, really hear what they're saying, actively listen to them. And that's how, you know, to bring it back to service, that's how you're going to end up treating people as they want to be treated. Yeah, which is supposed to be the, I suppose, the starting point of all great hospitality conversations, at least if you're starting uh, putting yourself in the shoes of the person that you're dealing with, then it's a decent starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I think that was sorry. probably about two minutes of conversation that that could easily have been done in about fifteen seconds. But there we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, assuming we get back to some degree of normality, whatever that's going to look like, um, what's uh, beyond the 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 big project that you've got your head in what's what does the future hold for for your role within the company I mean as I said earlier I just I don't I honestly don't want to be in the prediction business at the minute yeah um I think it's going to be really hard what we find is that you know recessions usually hit you know minority groups hard as they usually fall job cuts usually fall more on women um you know right now by the way I've been working from home this entire time while homeschooling my children. Yeah. And, you know, that has been an absolutely enormous challenge. This is probably the the most challenging time of my professional life. And I've had to completely rethink everything I was doing, completely rethink my ways of working. And and I'm, you know, and I know an awful lot of people who have been in the same boat, but we are, those of us who are parents are also doing that while looking after our kids while trying to, you know, do their education which is not something we're qualified to do while trying to look after their well-being and worry about their development at a time when they're not allowed to go and play with their friends and we have to kind of treat everybody as if they might infect us and that is something that's been you know worrying me and on my mind a lot so when I think I'm very lucky my my younger daughter is able to go back to her nursery tomorrow um and so I will get, you know, some, she, hopefully both of us will get a bit more normality back at that point. But we are, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back to the office because she's in nursery and they can't really distance the kids. So if I go to the office, am I going to be infecting everybody? So, yeah, so many unknowns, right? I mean, it's just, it's like a deck of cards has just been thrown in the air. Yeah. And we'll just see where it lands. So, you know, to your point about what what does it mean for my role? I think I'm I'm trying to get my head around how this affects different groups differently, because it's not the same thing that's fallen on all of us. Some of us have got childcare responsibilities, you know, black and minority ethnic people seem to be more susceptible to the coronavirus, seem to, you know, seem to be dying in, in greater numbers, which is horrifying really really scary and you know I completely understand some people may not feel comfortable to come back to work um you know other people you know might be having health issues so and mental health as I mentioned is going to be a huge focus for us so I think we're really going to have to think about all those different groups and how it affects them and whether there's things we can change in the way that we do things in our processes or training that we can give or what we might be able to do to try and you know level the playing field as much as possible because at a time like this you you do see really widening inequality yeah and and do all of this whilst looking after yourself <laughs> as well yeah 
and your kids yeah uh, and your husband yeah um yeah i mean hopefully he looks after himself i think we're lucky we look after each other i do i do feel very very lucky to have that in my life that at least you know i have got a household i have got some people that i'm locked down with um and to have had the time with all of them you know particularly because my, my younger one is going to school in september to have this sort of chunk of time together is you have to look at it as a gift as well i guess Absolutely. What would you say to someone who was considering a, a career in hospitality? Well, I mean, I know it sounds it sounds ridiculous right now, but I would say absolutely go for it. If you're passionate about it, then you should go for it even now. Yeah. I think what inspires me every day at Sarah House is how much passion our people put into what they do. You know, at every level. I can't even list everyone. There's let me think. There's there's a barista at Dean Street Townhouse called Marius. And I can always tell when Marius has made my coffee because it's just completely perfect. He's so fast. He does these incredibly detailed little feathers in the milk. You know, it's all the milk texture's really on point. Um, he's just fantastic at that. And there's Josie, who's one of our receptionists at Little House Mayfair. And she told me once that she's good at remembering people's names and, you know, she can always tell if someone's had their hair done. And then she was kind of after she'd said it, she was a bit embarrassed, like it wasn't really much of a skill. But you know, that's completely what makes the magic of Sarah House, that when you walk in there, there's this lovely smiley person and she knows your name and she tells you she likes her haircut. You know, that's why people come back. It's, yep. you can, those are the people that we need, you know, the ones that really care. Yeah, and not a skill you can learn in a textbook generally no exactly um, or she, or... and I think also the fact that you you don't really need a textbook does mean that there's a lot of opportunity out in our industry for people who you know wouldn't get into a bank they don't you know they don't have like an engineering degree or whatever it is they haven't been to the right university or whatever they don't need to have that so you know I look around our business at the really the sort of senior people and we've got the general manager of Soho House Mumbai who started in the cloakroom he started he was in the cloakroom of 40 Greek Street in the 90s our md for north america he started as a waiter around the same time the guy who looks after our design our global head of design is you know obviously looking after one of the aspects that we're best known for and he used to work on the bar yeah and so i just think what you see is that if you do have that passion and you work hard you can progress really you know really far there's no there's no real limit to where you can get and and that was something I was really looking forward to working on this year, getting more young people into the industry from backgrounds where, you know, maybe they wouldn't be getting a job in a law firm or whatever, because we need that kind of diversity in our business. And, you know, and for them, it can be really, I don't think it's seen as a prestigious career, but it can be absolutely life changing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even to sort of counter argue uh, what you said, and I don't do arguing on, on this show, but really... <laughs> It was just uh, around the, and you're a case in point here, actually, because I said it right at the beginning of, of the show. One of the reasons I started the podcast was to showcase the the diversity. And I mean that in the breadth of opportunity that's available in the industry. You you mentioned uh, the fact that you don't you know, we need to have an engineering degree, but we actually do have jobs for people with engineering degrees as well. The, you know, the, the, the opportunity in this industry, I think, is second to none and I've I think I've probably piped on about this quite a few times in the, the chats that I've had because it's one of the things that I find really appealing as somebody who works on the inside but if I was somebody on the, the outside looking at it I'd go oh really I can actually come into this industry and pick a job yeah yeah 
I don't know what else to say. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I completely of, agree. I think there's there are so many roles and um, we have this amazing global team. You know, we're in all these different countries. People join, our, you know, to do one thing in London and they end up going to Barcelona or, you know, we send people off to LA or, you know, you can you can go literally far if you are a top performer. And I think that's something that's really inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. And you also hit the nail on the head earlier on when you were talking about your the lady in your your team who can remember people's names. You know, as as discussed, it's not a skill you learn in a textbook, but it's it's nevertheless it's a it's a fantastic skill. And there are many, I suppose, unwritten skills in this industry. And she should if she if she can figure out a way to put it into a textbook, she'll make a killer. <laughs> I'll definitely mention that to her. Maybe I can write it just to keep my hand in. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Okay, well, if people want to reach out to you and have a, a chat to you about uh, the work that you're doing, the role that, that you are, or just to pick your brains on, on points of diversity and inclusion, what would be the best way for them to do that? Well, probably LinkedIn. I'm not much of a social media person, but I am on there. Um, you can find me, Emma Perfect Inclusion. As I said, it's a memorable name. Yeah. We usually don't have any trouble finding me. Uh, and I love to connect with other people from our industry. I think you know, I felt really well supported in the hospitality and travel industries by other people who are interested in this. And those conversations are starting to happen now and we are starting to team up a bit more and work together. And we're all really keen to open that conversation because, you know, as a colleague at Expedia said, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Very good. Yeah. Oh, well, it's normally me that puts the cliches in, so I'm grateful for, for somebody else taking that mantle in this one. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to chat, and I, uh, I really appreciate you making time to, to chat with us today. Um, and I wish you all the very best on the other side of this, whatever that might look like. And I'll, I'll certainly be checking in with you from time to time if you're happy for me to do that, because I, I think the word, um, the work that you're doing, sorry, that is massively important and i think the you know, you can definitely lead the conversation for other companies to kind of pick up uh, on the points as well well thank you so much phil it's been a real pleasure talking to you and um yeah i appreciate being called upon thank you no problem at all we'll speak to you soon all right take care take care bye bye now bye well a massive thank you to emma for coming on to share her story and what a phenomenal body of work she's already done on diversity and inclusion something we should definitely all get behind don't forget, we'll be launching a new episode every Wednesday. But in the meantime, we'd love for you to subscribe to the show and give us a like and a share on any of the usual social channels. See you next time.